so I thought, well, what would be, what might be helpful is if, um, like tonight, I look at just this whole uh, experience of reflection, the reflective mind and its relationship with insight, because this is very much what this area of contemplation is about. And then, um, and, and actually it covers, the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness covers sort of getting a grasp of all the basic teachings of the, the Buddhist te- uh, uh, practices and teachings, for getting it for ourselves, sort of in a way the Buddha got it. You know, it's like, you, you, in a way, what you have to do in meditation is reinvent the wheel, you know. <laughs> You've got, we've got to see it ourselves in the same way that he saw it. So it covers things like um, the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense fears, the four noble truths, the factors of enlightenment, you know. When you can get, when you can grok these, and you can begin to get these for ourselves in our practice, then, you know, there's a, there's a way that we're, we're reaching a level of self-sufficiency. It's like we know how to practice. We know what to do. We, 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 can, we can work it. Whatever arises, we're beginning to develop that capacity to, 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 to be with it, to work with it. So um, in light of that, I thought that uh, next week, um, a good topic to look at would be um, the five hindrances. And uh, since you're a seasoned uh, group, I, I didn't want to uh, go back over what the five hindrances are and everything, but, but really um, to look at something that I see very commonly, um, and this can go on for years in, in practice, uh, which is that, you know, we hear this teaching of the five hindrances and in a, in a funny kind of way that we're not even aware of it, um, it can almost become a new way to beat up on ourselves. You know, you begin to see these states of mind and um, then start labeling everything as, you know, oh, I'm so piggy, oh, I'm so hateful, you know, I'm so restless and agitated. And, and yet I find that a lot of the times what we're actually observing is not a hindrance. You know, and so the capacity to discern this difference between difficult states of mind and um, things that we're labeling as difficult or too quick to pounce on, you know, and and not giving the mind enough space around certain experiences or situations so that you can have some play, you know, so that we can work it out for ourselves. You know, sometimes you just get, jump on it too fast and... um, all, all we end up doing then is relating to our own states of mind, our own difficult states of mind, out of the same difficult states of mind, you know, <laughs> like hating hatred, you know, <laughs> and, and wanting some other state, you know. And uh, so it's not, it's not helpful. And yet a certain maturing in practice develops when we're able to just work with these in, a, in more refined ways. And I find, you know, maybe just... Give, give ourselves a break, you know, be a little kinder to ourselves, be a lot more spacious in practice and, and, and not be so quick to make things difficult that, that uh, aren't necessarily so. And so then um, that seems to, would, that would lead us nicely into looking at the, um, the aggregates, the five aggregates, and um, these are the things that we identify with and get caught up with as being uh, who we are. And this whole anatta business, you know, <laughs> this whole no self stuff, you know, what is that? And, and um, how is it that we're getting caught up 
that, that uh, getting caught up and identified with our physical and mental experience um, is, a, is a source of great suffering. And the main thing that we have to work with through the meditation practice to begin to dis dislodge, to disengage. And then uh, I think I have one more week after that. There's some question. I thought Gil was coming. He thought I was coming. So we'll work that out. <laughs> and if I'm here a fourth week, then we'll just take it from there. Maybe it'll be bits and pieces and see what's left after we've looked at some of this, okay? So I hope you'll, you'll join us for the next, uh, next few weeks with these topics in mind. So tonight, just uh, looking at uh, reflection and insight, this fourth foundation of mindfulness, um, it's called, as I said, it's called mindfulness of mental phenomenon. And sometimes I've seen it as mindfulness of dhammas with a small d. But I just saw something um, in the last few years where uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a very renowned um, scholar and practitioner, um, translated this as mindfulness or awareness of the Dhamma, capital D, in the Dhammas. And, and I thought this was a key to really understanding what he's saying here, what the Buddha is saying. Because basically what he's looking at in the fourth foundation of mindfulness is that we have to be able to come to see the truth, as the Buddha taught it, the Dhamma, in our moment-to-moment -moment experiences. And so this introduces this whole level of um, activity in the mind that I think in many ways it, it kind of goes on all the time, but often just below the level of our awareness, where the mind is sort of putting things together figuring things out, you know? And how do you, how do you get insight? Something, so it's seen this, it's seen this, it's seen this, and at some point it reaches a critical mass and it goes, oh, you know, that's what they mean. That's what that is. So this, this fourth foundation of mindfulness is kind of getting at that. Can we see the hindrances and know how they arise Can, and know what makes them stay and how they go away? and what it's like to have them gone, you know? Um, can, we, can we see the five aggregates, the way that we cling to the experience of body and, and feeling and mind and, and get so caught up in it, like this is who I am? And can we see that as a suffering state and out of that wisdom and understanding, just begin to let go, you know, loosen, loosen the grip? You know, can you see uh, the things that are going on through the eyes, through the ears, through the nose, you know, the, the sensory experience. Can we notice this and see that as distinct from the objects that it knows? Can we break that apart so that we're not so caught in sensory experience? It's just hearing, you know, it's just seeing. It's not, I gotta, get, I gotta have what I see. So just getting a sense of this as a, as a foundation, uh, as something that is distinct from the first three foundations of mindfulness, which I, I mean, if you're, I think you're all quite familiar with these, but the, the, um, the foundations of mindfulness as they're, they're put out in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, have to do with essentially like, so you're a meditator and you're told to pay attention what do you pay attention to? And, and what are some tools that you have for looking, you know? 
And so in this um, teaching, the Buddha tells us, like, for instance, when you're looking at the body, that, um, you know, to tune into the, the rising and falling of the breath. And that experience itself not only connects us with the physical form, but can be a great inroad for insight into the impermanent nature of things. You know, things arise and pass away. Things arise and pass away. But when he's talking about the body, he's also saying, you know, to tune it. He gives us some other hints with um, the four elements, for example, to begin to discern physicality as earth, air, fire, and water, both internally and externally, making the point that what goes on with my earth, air, and fire, uh, fire and water is the same as what goes on with yours. And it's also the same that goes on in the world, you know. So, um, you know, the idea is to, to begin to tune in to like nights like tonight where there's too much fire, you know. <laughs> and, and you get a sense of um, can, you, can you practice just being with the fire, with the excess of fire. You know, the, the basic teaching is that these four elements, you know, come together in the physical world and they're not always in balance, you know, they're not always balanced. Sometimes there's too much of one and not enough of another and, and vice versa. And our whole physical experience is a constant play of these, whether you're looking at what's going on in your body, you know, a thirsty, not enough water element, you know, or hot flashes for those of us in midlife, you know, you know too much fire element, uh, things of this nature. And just beginning to notice um, the experience of the body at this level. The, the second one has to do with noticing feeling, noticing the experience of pleasure and pain and, and neither. And, and how, you know, not so much how that happens, but simply that it happens. You know, and that it's like, it, as soon as you, we come into contact with something, whether it's something in the physical world or even thoughts and ideas and all, there's a, an, an automatic response to that that it has this tone to it, like I like it, I don't like it, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant. And, and that, that just, that's just happening. <laughs> you know, it's like nobody, you're not making that happen. It, it's, it's a, Buddha said actually it's a, it's a karmic result. It's a fruit of past actions and there's nothing that we can do to change our experience of things as pleasant and unpleasant per se, but what we can do, and this is what the invitation is with the second foundation of mindfulness, is to begin to open to the fact of that and to not necessarily, um, not, not get caught in it so much, you know. Otherwise, the unpleasant becomes, you know, pushing things away and the pleasant becomes things that we have to have. And these, you know, the Buddhist teachings tell us very clearly are suffering states. But pleasure and pain, ironically, or seemingly paradoxically, are not necessarily difficult states, you know, that we can open, we can um, experience these with some semblance of equanimity. And uh, I'm sure you, you've seen the fruits of this in your own practice. It's, it's fabulous when you can begin to be with things that are unpleasant and not go nuts, you know. Or, or be with things that you like and, and not have to have them, <laughs> you know? It's like, 
the, the mind that can do that can start appreciating life, you know, because the, the greedy mind just, um, it, it can't appreciate anything. <laughs> it's got to have it, you know, it just can't be with it and appreciate it, you know. So this uh, second foundation of feeling is very important. And then he talks about the, the third foundation, which is um, just developing the capacity to know the state of mind that you're in. You know, to know the greedy mind as a greedy mind, to know the happy mind as a happy mind, to know the exalted mind as an exalted mind. You know, and that's, that, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me that was huge. <laughs> you know, it's like to, to be... Uh, aware enough, detached enough from my own states of mind to be to just know that I'm in a state, you know, and not live, not live it, not be it so completely or so consumed by it. So I mean that right there, you know, you're starting to develop um, a great capacity for detachment and dispassion. You know, it seems to get easy, uh, harder as you go along, but the rewards are greater. You know, it's easy to, to see the body as the body. It's easy to sort of get a sense of that as not, not something that's under our control, that's not who we are particularly. It's a, you know, a little bit harder to, to do that with feeling. But thinking, you know, we're just, I mean, as Westerners, we're just so into our thoughts. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, some thoughts aren't me, but this one really is, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, just the fact that one is thinking, you know, that's how we identify ourselves, with our ideas, with the fact that we can think, you know. So to be able to get some separation from that, to be able to look at that impartially as... Uh, a, a, a mental event is huge, you know, isn't it? It's really fabulous when, when we start to do that. So now, when we come to this um, fourth foundation of mindfulness, here, you know, it's fascinating as the Buddha put this together for us in this way, because it's like you're getting to another level of sophistication, really. Um, basically, I think up up until that point, we're kind of looking a lot at the content of the mind and the body. This is physical event, this is a mental event. There's a little bit of understanding the process of it, the fact that the play of the elements keeps changing, the fact that pleasure and pain keeps changing, things like this. But here, I think, um, we, we take a leap where I'm beginning to look a lot more at the process of the mind and the way that we get caught and the way that we suffer as a result of getting caught. So the third foundation of mindfulness is called you know, mental phenomenon, uh, mental objects or the things that are going on in the mind and beginning to look at these in a, in a new way. So it, it's beginning to see when there's suffering and when there's not and how to avoid suffering, you know, how, uh, you know, you're where you've seen something so many times, you know, you're going to go, oh, that's how I keep getting caught in that, 
and you know um, maybe to, not only from your psychological level that this is this is my karma this is something that keeps coming up in me and I get caught in it every time I do <laughs> it does you know you're beginning to see that level but also seeing that it's this clinging you know it's this grabbing a hold of experience that is uh, the real culprit so this also involves um, getting to see for ourselves what's skillful and what's not you know watching over the months and years of practice what kinds of states of mind uh, bring suffering to myself and to other people and you know over time, you, you know, you just reach points where you go, you know, I don't believe I'm going to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, I've seen that one. I know where that one goes, and maybe I'll, I'll be able to back off a little bit. But the way that all this is happening is what's interesting to me. It's it's really um, bringing in this capacity to reflect on our experience. That the mind has this capacity. It has this capacity to, to know things in a way that um, distinguishes us really from other species. I mean, as far as we know, um, other beings don't look at themselves. <laughs> you know, they, they don't have this capacity where the mind can turn around and look at itself. You know, that's incredible. That's why we call it reflection, it's like a mirror. The, you know, the Buddha referred to it as the mirror of the mind, the capacity to see what's going on in the mind. It's like, isn't that what we're doing? That's, that's amazing. You know, because like the other senses can't do that. You know, only, only the mind can, can turn around and, and look at itself. And it seems like this fourth foundation of mindfulness is, is sort of naming that as a capacity. And inviting us, if you will, to, to use it, to become aware of it and to use it to, it to its utmost. And when we do that, it's like that's the, the mechanism through which you begin to get the ahas, you know, that, that sense of like, oh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what they mean by the mental hindrance. I see it now. Okay, I'm getting it. Or you know, the, the cause of suffering, the, the first and the second noble truth, you know, and how it ends, you know, how are you going to see that for yourself? There's a way that it's not necessarily happening on the cushion, you know, it could be happening, and most likely probably happening at other times throughout the day where you, you, get, you get these little moments, don't you? You go, ooh, you know. And I think that what's happening here is that the Buddha is kind of saying, um, name that. Know that you have that capacity and bring it more fully conscious. Become aware of that capacity and use it more fully. You know, can you see that? It's like, it's like really um, making the most out of that capacity. Now, to, to do this, I think you have to get clear on a sense of what reflective thought is all about. And um, I think it could be helpful just to, to consider the difference between uh, reflective thought and discursive thought. 
because it's, it's important because when you start talking about using thought in meditation, you know, <laughs> your meditators get this kind of thing, you know, no, you know, thought, you're not, you know, thought is bad. You're not supposed to, isn't that what meditation is all about, is learning somehow to control our thoughts or to stop thinking, you know. And, um, you know, I, I, think that's, I think that's a little off, which is, quite frankly, a great relief <laughs> because it's doing it so much, you know. But the, uh, it, it's like just noticing the difference between what I'm calling discursive thought, which is this tendency of the mind to just pick up anything, pick it up, play with it for a while, yak, 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 yak about it for a while, and then, you know, maybe get, you know, find something else more interesting and start yakking about that. Or, you know, just put it down because it got bored with it and wait for the next thing to come along, you know. And, you know, if we're honest, a, a lot of our meditation is that, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> that's all that's going on in there, you know. <laughs> yak, 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 you know. So it, it's just kind of getting a sense of, you know, what I call the voices inside my head, you know, that this is, um, this is a certain kind of thinking. It is um, almost entirely free of any significant content. <laughs> it's just... You could stop doing it right now and um, you wouldn't be missing a thing. <laughs> Except maybe some entertainment because it is very entertaining, you know. But, so it's just kind of getting a sense of that. And then um, consider that um, there's this other kind of thought that you, you, I'm calling it thought because it is thought. You, you, can't, you can't call it anything other than that. But it's this... Um, sort of capacity to look at things and reflect on what's happening, to ponder our experience, to consider it. And it's very soft. Sometimes it doesn't even have words to it. It's more a sensation. Do you know what I mean? It's more like a sensing of things. This sense of um, just, you know, in subtle ways, you know, the mind has put something together, figured something out just on its own. So this reflective thought is thought that it's analyzing, but it's not in a psychological way, and it's not in, a, in an intellectual way, really. You know, um, It's sort of like, it's kind of poking at what's happening. It's like, okay, well, wait, wait, what is this? What's going on with me right now? And just kind of asking that question, what is it? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? You know, is do I, can I get a sense of what this state is? Can I get a sense of how it got here? So it's this kind of, it's like, if you can feel it, it's kind of investigative, which is one of the um, factors of enlightenment. It can't be a bad thing, you know? But it, isn't your mind doing this a lot? You know, it's sort of, it's a natural tendency and capacity of the mind. It, it's putting things together. Um, and when it's applied in the right kind of way, it really forms the basis of insight. So this kind of thought, the only caution that I want to put on it is to, to notice that um, in order to use thought in this way or to uh, sort of fan the flame of this or bring it more foremost in our practice, 
you know, you have to have developed a certain degree of detachment from what is going on. And so that's why the first three foundations of mindfulness are so important, because it's through those that you are developing that detachment. You're seeing the body as body, experiencing sensation as sensation, not me or mine, you know. You're seeing feeling as feeling, seeing thought as thought. And once you've got that, then, you know, can you feel that? You're kind of like, you're really back from experience. And from that posture, from that back from experience posture, then you're able to go, okay, now what is this? What's going on here? And begin the process of sorting it out, right? So these first three foundations are very important because they're, it's, it's through that that you're developing that high degree of detachment. And then one can move in as a mature meditator and begin to notice that it's not even like you have to begin to do this because in many ways you've already been doing it. It's more recognized that that capacity to sort things out is not outside of the meditation practice. It's very much a part of it. And, and I, you know, I like to encourage people to welcome it, to invite it in, um, and, and use it well. So when you're uh, sitting or throughout the day, just to begin to notice a, a part of your that part of your experience that knows what's happening. You know, can you tune into that, that bit that's sort of evaluating it and, and putting it together in the mind? You know, this is not an unfamiliar capacity. You're doing it with everything else all the time. And, and so I think maybe because of this thing with thinking, then we're kind of not letting that part of our mental apparatus operate in the meditation practice. And yet it's very important for insight. You know, just one way that you can notice this throughout the day is um, you might notice it in kind of um, simple little things like, you know, uh, one thing I was watching my mind do one time was um, looking at the tiles in a building on the floor that were not in any noticeable pattern, you know. And my mind, is, you know, the, the, our capacity of mind is like, is very interested in patterns. It's always sorting things according, like trying to find the, 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 the normal thing in it or, you know, trying to connect the dots. Do you know that capacity? It's like, it's, it's doing that a lot so that when you walk into a room where there's um, no, no discernible pattern, watch the mind, you know, try to get a fix, you know, and try to sort it out. Try to say, okay, now wait, how did they do that? And where, you know, there must be some kind of pattern here, you know? It's this, it's this capacity. It's, it's sort, of a, sort of a mundane way to see that this is a very natural tendency in the mind. It likes to figure things out. You know, it likes to put some order to things. Or a, another example I could give, um, one time I was, I was uh, looking at uh, doubt in, in, the, in my own mind and just noticing how um, I, I have this, had this habit of taking my cues from the external world. It was like raised in a, uh, a family and an environment where 
you know, there was a lot of um, rules and discipline. And so one is always just trying to do what you're supposed to do, you know, <laughs> follow the rules, do it the right way, you know, get it right. And, uh, and so that I, I began to notice that this, this was a, uh, actually had highly conditioned my mind to, to doubt and confusion when it came to trying to take my cues from my internal world, you know, like what was my sense of things, <laughs> you know, not what the world thought or not what I was supposed to do or who I was supposed to be, you know. So that was, was fascinating just to uh, begin to notice that um, that way that my mind had put things together and how this hindrance of doubt was so strong in me because of my conditioning, you know? And just that little bit, that little insight that I got from noticing the difference between taking one's cues from the external world versus taking one's cues from the internal. And it was very, it was very liberating, you know, just to begin to get that. Certainly, you still do it, but then, then you've got the insight, the understanding to begin to dismantle uh, these kinds of constructs that, that aren't particularly t- helpful. Or n- noticing um, uh, just like in the teaching where the Buddha talks about perception, the, the activity of mind to uh, perceive things, to recognize and conceive things. And um, there are beginning to understand that there are many, many perceptions in one's psychological makeup that are in there from this life, past lives, who knows. But they're just, they're they're like little biases or little ideas about the way we think things are, you know. And when you begin to discern the subtle uh, belief systems that are driving your actions, you know, that's huge. That can be huge. So this is the same kind of capacity. The mind is turning back and looking on itself and discerning its own processes and seeing how um, attachment to those processes is creating a lot of difficulty. It's fascinating. So that, that these, the way that you untie these things is through mindfulness through awareness, you know, we have to see them. And this uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness is pointing us at all the big ones, you know, just begin to get a sense of these for ourselves. So the purpose of this uh, foundation is, is to make us more aware that the mind is already reflecting. The mind is already looking at things, looking at itself, uh, it's looking at other things and figuring things out. And this is sort of an invitation to say, turn it around and use that to look at itself and figure out the processes of mind itself. Now, this is huge. I mean, one, one thing that I noticed in my own mind um, was that I think the reason I was missing that for so many years was that 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 referring capacity, that turning around and reflecting back on what uh, is going on, was almost entirely used up 
in um, reflecting on me, <laughs> you know, reflecting on myself. You know, all this capacity to look at yourself and try to figure things out according to what I want, what I don't want, what I need, what I got to get, you know, <laughs> all this. It's like all the, the, the mind, me, and, and I stuff. It's like almost all of my mental thoughts were about me. <laughs> you know, it was like, well, no wonder. <laughs> you know, I'm not getting anything else. It's like it's all, it's all tied up. This uh, potentially incredibly liberating capacity of the mind is completely consumed with me. <laughs> so, um, you know, begin to get it interested in something else you know, in, in the processes of the mind. It's going to be doing this anyway. So I think a lot of meditation practice is just turning it in the direction of things that would be a lot more useful, <laughs> you know, in terms of getting us free than, um, you know, our, our petty little self-gratifying world, you know, self-absorbed world. So, uh, to do this, um, and just bring this all a little more conscious, um, you know, one, I think one has to be willing to risk a little bit of thinking in practice, you know? <laughs> I mean, you're, we're doing it anyway. So, it's kind of like, let's be honest about that, you know? It's, there's so much thinking going on. Now, if we could just turn that thinking to good use, then we, then we might get somewhere. <laughs> and it, could, uh, it could really be of great benefit. So, gosh, I could go on forever. There's a lot more I wanted to talk about, but um, I think I'll stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.